Did you ever get a gift from someone and forget to open it? Maybe you just put it somewhere and then maybe you put something in a pile and you put something else on top of it and you just forgot about it. Then one day you found it and you opened it up and you focused on the gift and you realized it was absolutely an amazing gift. The Word of God gives us number, numerous amazing gifts, but sometimes some of these gifts are often missed, and one of them is that the Bible records many prayers of the great men and women of the faith. Yet prayer in the American church it seems to me to be very different than prayers in the Bible. We seem to range from non-existent to overly emotional to hyper-spiritual to materialism to kind of just going through the motions. And it's very important for us to, when we come to the prayers in the Bible, to work through them and to study them, uh, to hear the Lord's heart on prayer and also to help us find strength and direction in prayer. That's why we're going to look even more at this in a different way than we are today. On Wednesday night, today we're going to look at one man's prayer, but Wednesday night we're going to think of ways we can pray better. Such a study will help us to improve our praying for God's glory, which is the most important part of all, and for our own personal good. Now, many of you have heard the illustration of dropping a frog into a pot of boiling water. And what happens is either the frog jumps out or the frog dies right away. But if you put a frog into a pot of cool water and then you turn up the heat slowly usually the frog will stay there as it's dying a slow death without realizing what's happening. And often the great men and women of the faith, especially the prophets in the Word of God, realized that the people of God were the frog in the pot that was slowly boiling. That they had adapted to the culture that they were living in, in terms of the bad practices. I'm not against culture. Culture is a great thing. I love the rich culture of so many of the people in our church. Like whenever somebody, you know, has a, has a dish they make or something like that, I, I absolutely love that. And so I, I'm all for culture, but the sinful things of the culture often is killing the faith of God's people and that is often recorded in the scriptures. And the prophets knew uh, that, that at times God saw his people, even though they were attending the temple, God saw his people at times more pagan than pure. And even though they were religious, it had no change on the way they were living, on the way that they worshipped, on anything really outside of what they were doing when they were in the temple. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago, Isaiah chapter 1, where the Lord said, you know, you keep coming into church 
but actually it's making me sick because I know what's really going on in your hearts. Now, the American church will often come along and, and, and say things like, well, we need more teaching, and that's probably true. We, or they'll say, we need more evangelism. That's a big one. We want to evangelize the people in the church who are not really Christians, and I, and I get that. Uh, studies show that only about 2 to 4%, I actually think 4% is on the high side, of people who pray the prayer to invite Jesus into their heart last more than a few years. Most people, sometimes they don't even last the, by the end of the week. Other people say, well, we need more uh, church programs and ministries. <laughs> I'd be one of the, of, in the camp of that's probably a big part of the problem. And self-help church is not really what we need. And this is something I've really noticed in the current environment we find ourselves in. Uh, I think all of these programs that we have is part of the reason why the government considers us to be non-essential. You say, what do you mean? I think they think that we're more of a club. I think that they, they, we, they think we're more of a self-help place or kind of a hobby than an essential service to people. Others will say, well, it's, it's all Hollywood's fault. You know, the sexual revolution... It's politics, it's social issues, it's the self-centered culture. And those are all real symptoms of the real problem. What's the real problem? Well, I'll just say one of them is, and you may agree with me, this is at the top of the list, or it's got to be somewhat near the top of the list. We don't know God well enough. And that's really a big problem. We can't get our arms around his love and his holiness. We have to hold the two of those in very tight tension. He loves us, but yet he's very holy and very pure. And here's part of the problem, if not a huge part of the problem, the big part of the problem for a lot of people who would say that they're Christians they can't get their arms around. They'll tout God's love. They can't get their arms around his holiness, and they're okay with it. It doesn't really bother them. Now, knowing God in a, in a deep and intimate way will help sort out a lot of the issues of our lives, as well as it will help us to speak truth into the lives of others. See, the problem really is, is, if the desire to know God more deeply is missing in our lives, even though we might call ourselves Christians, we will be reaching for God's blessings instead of what? Instead of actually reaching for God. And it's a big, big difference. You know, do you ever have a friend who they only call you when you need something? Well, we don't want to be that way with God. It's been said when it comes to prayer in the, in the American church that the American church knows how to organize, but it doesn't know how to agonize. So we can organize prayer meetings, but are we really agonizing in our prayer meetings? It's been said of the American church of our services that our services are very good at entertaining, but we're not very good 
at worshiping. The title of our message today is Praying with a Prophet for Revival. And I pray the Holy Spirit begins to touch all of us with a new vision for honest and humble prayer and really understanding what it means to pray for revival. Now, the prophet Habakkuk lived about 600 B.C., and it was about that time that the people of God in Judea and Jerusalem was part of that area. They were frogs in the slow heat pot, and it was boiling. It was really starting to boil. For a while now, they had been sucked into the culture after a period of time when there were reforms under King Josiah. Everything wasn't perfect, but it was moving in a good direction. And what was happening to them? Without the reforms of King Josiah, and we should never have to need some person around to get us to live for God. That's not a, that's not a good thing. And so despite the reforms, they were, sucked into, they were getting sucked into the culture after Josiah was gone. And so they were, now they were spiritually dying. In chapter 1, Habakkuk bluntly came to God and said, you got to fix this. And he saw what was going on. He was a godly man. He's like, you got you to fix this. And God said, I will. I'll send the pagan Babylonians. That's right. Habakkuk didn't like the idea. God said, I will let people who are 100% completely against everything that heaven stands for discipline my people because of why? Because of my love and because of my holiness because I want to bring them back to the place where they can know me more deeply. Well, that was chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord said, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So he begins to, the Lord begins to tell Habakkuk that the true people of God are going to live faithfully, trusting God, even when the Babylonians come in and conquer them. And he then said at the end of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, the Lord said, and let me deal with the Babylonians. I will take care of them. And chapter 2 ended with chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord in his holy temple, let, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Now when we come into chapter 3, there's a big change that goes on. Habakkuk is no longer looking at the problem from his point of view. You know how we tend to see, only see the problem from our point of view? He's no longer looking at the problem from his point of view, but from heaven's point of view. And that changes absolutely everything for Habakkuk. Chapter 3 is God's answer to Habakkuk's heart-wrenching questions. What were the questions? Why do the righteous suffer? Why do you seem so silent, God? And why in the world did you pick Babylon? But what's interesting is the answers do not come out of God's mouth. Rather, they come out of the mouth 
of the praying prophet. That's how much he's changed between chapter 1 and chapter 3, merely with that statement, but the just shall live by his faith. In fact, at the end of chapter 3, which we're not getting to today, it's one of the most moving statements of faith and trust in the entirety of the Bible, but it comes out of true prayer. Sometimes we'll say this statement. We'll say, well, prayer changes us. I agree. Prayer does change us. We're actually going to see it in the life of Habakkuk. And I have been honest with you, it is most unexpected. In that sense, when we say that prayer changes us, realize this, loved ones, prayer can be dangerous. It can be really dangerous. True prayer does away with vending machine God. You know vending machine God. You go up to the vending machine, and you just tell God what you want. You don't put any money in. It costs you nothing. Everything's free. You know, E5, great husband. You know, E2, you know, E great job. All, all these kinds of things. And it just drops down, and you take it, and you, you go your merry way. No, no, prayer is dangerous. Why? Because... In prayer, God will often reveal the truth to you, and you might not like it. In fact, you might barely even be able to believe what it is that you're hearing. So he begins verse 1. He says, it says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on, some versions say, according to uh, Shiganath or Shig, Shijanath. You know how you go, on those, you go on the internet to learn how to pronounce words? And three different things pop up you can listen to. You're like, oh, great. And all three pronounce it differently. Well, this is one of those words there. It's probably a, a musical term. Look at the last line of the book, chapter 3. It says, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. So it's, it's a prayer and it's a, a song. So it's really written like a psalm. And worship and prayer is the proper response to what Habakkuk is learning about God, or what we might call the revelation of God to his servant, the prophet. And it's also worship and prayer is the proper response to God's astonishing actions, or what we might call the mighty works of God. His prayer is one now of submission. Chapter 1, he was complaining. Chapter 2, there was more listening. Right? As, his, as his heart and his mind was changing, he was being renewed. The renewing of his mind was taking place, as the Scripture says. And so now his prayer is one of submission to God's judgments and God's rulings in the face of perplexing realities, of things he just didn't really totally understand. And friends, I have to be honest with you, I'm, I'm saddened sometimes by what I hear from people, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, is we have great passion when we're upset with God. We have great passion when we want God to do something. But we really don't have much passion when God wants us to be submissive to him. And, and Habakkuk is passionate about being submissive to God as he prays, even though 
he might not agree with what God's doing, but as we're going to see today, he gets it. Yes, we've learned, chapter 1, that we can unload our feelings on God, but then there must come a time for chapter 2, verse 20, for us to be silent. The world's situation, remember we covered that Babylon was just rolling over everybody. I mean, they just... They had raised, been raised up as a world superpower, and they were also called the Chaldeans, and they were just rolling over everybody. They just, just like, a, like, like a car running over, running over everything in, in its path. And the world situation was in a disaster. And, and we do well to model the prophet's thoughts, attitudes, and prayer in our day because our world right now is in a disaster. And we have many of the same questions that Habakkuk had. Why is this happening? Yet, I wonder, do we lack a key question to getting to the place where Habakkuk is? What would that question be? Lord, what's wrong with your people? Not what's wrong with the world. Lord, what's wrong with your people? You see, Habakkuk desperately wanted what we call revival. He wanted revival in the land, and many of us are praying for revival. Now, before you say amen, he's going to challenge us, are we really praying for revival? Here's a very, very deep, heartfelt, soul-searching question. If we really want revival, how do we feel about the fact that God may want to use a terrorist group to bring it? Because that's what he's doing in Israel right now. That's what he's doing in Judea right now in southern Israel. He is going to bring in terrorists to bring revival into his land. How do, we, how do we feel if God wants to use a pandemic to bring revival? And there were periods of plagues in, 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 in the Bible where God said to his people, I'm serious about this stuff. You know, they were complaining about, we looked at a couple weeks ago or months ago where, you know, the people were complaining about everything and, and God sent serpents because his people just, they needed to be brought back to, to him. What if God wants to use a time of great pain in, in his people to bring about Revival. And before we get too high and mighty on our horse, you may be sitting at home going, well, that's why I don't go to church. Church is made up of Christians. And so by all of us not following God or the church collectively not following God or getting going down a different path or that path by following the ways of the culture, what will God have to do to bring us back? I know this is very anti-American church, but we all know right now that times are bad. We all know that there's a high probability that they could get 
worse, either with this virus or economically or other ways. But the question is, will you, will I, will we live by faith in such difficult times, or will we abandon ship? So, verse 2, verse 2 is a stick of dynamite in our way of thinking. Now, some of you are like, oh, this is, sound, this is going rough here, Pastor Jim. I, I'm just, I, verse by verse, line by line, what it is, it is. Oh, Lord, he says, verse 2, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Let's just stop there for, for one second. I've heard your speech, and I was afraid. A lot of Bible versions, more versions put it this way. I have heard the report of you. I have heard of your fame. Typically, when they would talk about that, they would be thinking of being taken out of Egypt with Moses. I stand in awe of your deeds. We almost get the feeling that Habakkuk says, Lord, I've heard about you all my life. I'm a good little Jewish boy. My parents raised me in the faith, and I heard about you all my life. But now, now I see. I love this. Right before our very eyes, prophet, a prophet, Habakkuk, is growing in the faith. Now, that should be very encouraging to all of us. That's evidence of us you don't have to arrive to serve the Lord. You can start right wherever you are to serve God. And he's growing. His faith is developing. His prayer is becoming confident by being aware of God's work in the past. What does that tell us? He's a Bible reader. He's a Bible reader. Once again, we see, we've said this many times on Wednesday nights, Eyes off the problems and fixed on the Lord. Eyes off the problems. Doesn't mean we're not going to deal with them at some point. But if we want God's wisdom, eyes off the problems, put them over there for a second, and eyes on the Lord. And what does that do? That makes him afraid of the Lord. That makes him stand in awe of the Lord. And it makes him confident in the Lord. So for... For the Old Testament saints, which Habakkuk is one of them, the men and women of faith of the Old Testament, their eyes were on the saving power of God from Egypt during the Exodus. For us, it is our eyes are on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this kind of understanding is not limited to a prophet. It's not limited to an apostle. A personal relationship with God is available to everyone. In the Scripture, the fear of the Lord, which the Scripture says is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge, or, or the terror of the Lord, can actually feed our faith. It leads us to a deep respect and reverence for God that is long-lasting. I know that doesn't seem to make sense, but it does. Habakkuk's focus on an all-powerful and all-knowing God who hates sin 
but offers the forgiveness of sin gives him great confidence and great hope. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed the animals for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there would be an element of faith, otherwise you're just going through the motions. In the New Testament, it is the sacrifice of God's Son. Again, the same thing, there must be an element of faith that goes with it. Now, let's think for a second about the people of God who left Egypt. If you know the story, if you don't, you can read about them in, in uh, books 2 through 5 of the Bible, and uh, you'll realize that um, <laughs> they were a bunch of whining, complaining sinners who God still loved, and He offered them grace. But their unbelief still cost them 40 years in the wilderness. God still needed to do something to help them to grow. Put all of this together, and I think we're beginning to see that Habakkuk's effective prayer, and you could say this for all effective prayer, is marked by humility without ignoring reality. So, so he's, he's, he's putting them together. Back in Habakkuk chapter 1, I, I want to read verse 5 to you. It's the Lord's first words to the prophet. He said, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Now, most people would read that and they would be like, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded. I don't believe that. God could never do anything that could get everybody's eyes on him so quickly. Really? I'm not saying whether he did it or he allowed it, but how quickly did coronavirus bring our world down? I mean, how quickly did it get everybody on edge? And here's the hard part. This is a really hard part. In fact, I would advise you right now to put your coffee down. You might want to put your seatbelts on because we have to come to the realization that Habakkuk has come to. Habakkuk knows that Babylon is the right answer to the unbelief of the people of God. Some of you are like, Pastor Jim, could you say that again? I, I, don't th I, I didn't hear you too well. They, they were temple attend attending people. They were church people. They were, they were doing the feast. They, were, <laughs> they, they had all their celebrations. They were doing all the religious stuff you're supposed to do. Habakkuk knows. He's come to the place where he realizes that the people of God are unbelieving believers, that the people of God are posers, that so many of them really don't believe. There's people who do, but so many of them really don't, even though they're attending temple, even though they're attending church. And, and Habakkuk's in the place and time where he realizes that Babylon is the right answer for the people of God. And Habakkuk doesn't attempt in any way to defend the people. He's not like, hey, God, you forgot. We're the Israelites. He doesn't say, God, you forgot. We go to temple. 
We serve at our church. We have Bibles all over our house, man. Bibles everywhere. Bibles, Bibles, Bibles. We put money. We put a few shekels in the offering. God, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? He doesn't attempt to defend that at all. He knew what Isaiah wrote 100 years earlier, that God was sick of the fact that they would come in and play temple, play church, and their hearts were really not towards him. No, that's not what Habakkuk does. He essentially says, we've sinned, we've left you in our hearts. We might be going through the motions. We've sinned, we're living like the people around us. We've left you, and we deserve this. And we deserve this. And as awful as it may seem, Habakkuk is willing to submit to God's plan for God's glory and the good of his people. Habakkuk seems to have realized that what he thought was silence before was the grace of God. God was just patiently waiting to see if his people would change. And the punishment that is now coming their way is actually the love of God. Fast forward to the New Testament. The Apostle Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's a pretty serious statement. And if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will, what will their end be? Well, it will be hell without trusting Jesus. Verse 18. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, <laughs> that's because of Jesus. It's, it's a hard thing. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's almost like our hearts should be broken by those words. Like, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to my friends? going to happen to my co-workers, my family members? What's going to happen to those people? You know, sometimes the church, and remember, the church is comprised of people, whether they, whether they attend church or not, sometimes they, be, can, they can be so critical of the world's sin. Or the opposite, under the, under the guise of being relevant, they don't care anything about it, all the while ignoring their own sin. Don't even think about it at all. Many Christians hide behind grace. Well, when they sin, they go, well, there's grace, there's grace. Yet Titus chapter 2 says that the grace of God teaches us to obey God. Other people will say stuff like this. They'll say stuff, well, we're not perfect, but at least we're not as bad as those people. Or, or other people look at us and they go, you're just like everybody else. We're not supposed to be pointing at them saying we're not as bad. We're not supposed to be thought of as being just like everybody else. We're supposed to be God's people. We're supposed to be different. And sometimes I feel like, and certainly when I read the Bible, and certainly when I look around at times, I feel sometimes God wants to, wants to say this to the American church. If you won't take the plank out of your eye, you'd have to Google that if you want to know more about that, if you don't know. If you won't take the plank out of your eye, if you won't take the sin out of the church, 
if you won't take the sin out of your own life, then I'm going to do it for you. And why does God do it? Because he loves us and because he's holy. You see, maybe a lot of people don't realize this, but they're the frog in the pot. And it's slow boiling, and it's so slow boiling, they don't realize that they're becoming spiritually dead. I've heard people say God is using the virus to get the rest of the world to wake up. I've heard people say God is using the virus to judge the world. I don't know, but I'm just throwing out to you what Habakkuk knows is going on in his day. I'm not saying it's going on in our day, but it's entirely possible. Is it possible that God could be using the virus to discipline a church that it's lost its way? Many New Testament Christians, I call them that, but sort of tongue-in-cheek, stand in judgment on the God of the Old Testament that he uses the savage Babylonians. But let's understand this. That's what it took to kick the idols out of the land. And it worked. They got, a lot of them lost their lives. A lot of them were taken as prisoners down to Babylon. But the idols that were there before, when they came back, they were gone. There was other things that popped up. They, they suffered from too much religion, not enough relationship with God. They changed the, the, all these little laws and rules that they were, they, they were bringing, importing into the faith that were never there, put in there by God. Rules of men, Jesus said, not the rules of God, not the things of God. But, but, but I tell you what, man, the Babylonians did take the idolatry out of them. It sure did. You know, the old expression goes, it took God one night to get the, his people out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And so, so the Babylonians did kick the idols out. And loved ones, I know you don't want to hear this, but some of us know this for a fact. I know this all too well. This is one of the reasons why I love God, but I fear him at the same time, is sometimes the Lord has to sting us so badly because it's the only way to get us to stop. It's the only way to get us to look up and fear him and live for him. If you don't believe me, look at the cross. Don't think about it. Don't even see it. Feel it. Feel the nails going into Jesus. Feel the shame of most likely being crucified naked in front of all those people. Feel the separation from God. Feel for a second all goodness sucked out of the world. All goodness sucked out of your life and you are just there in the midst of just pure evil. Feel how God the Father stung Jesus on the cross for you and for me. Feel it, man. Feel it. So Habakkuk asks for two things from God. 
you could say three, but we'll be here forever if we do all three. Two things from God. The first thing he asks for is revival. Verse 2 continues, O Lord, revive your work. Man, just stop and think about that. Dude, that's praying. That is not, that is, that is praying. Lord, oh Lord, revive your work. Not my work, your work. Some versions say, renew your work. Do it again, God. In the midst of the years, Lord, we want to see it now. We want to see it now. In the midst of the years, make it known. So what is he saying? He says, He's saying, God, revive your work and make it known. Reveal it to us. Let us see it. Let us experience it. We know you have to discipline us. Discipline us and bring us back to you. It's like he's now saying, he's complaining in chapter 1. Now in chapter 3, he sees it so bad. It's like he's saying to God, would you please do whatever it takes? Whatever it takes, man, please. Do it. Do it. We're that far gone, and we don't even see it. The people are blind to it. Habakkuk knew the people needed the renewal of the righteousness from King Josiah's reign. They needed to return. He knew that they needed revival. He knew that their faith was dead. They knew, as the New Testament said, they were dead in trespasses and sins, and they needed God's resurrection power. So what is Habakkuk asking God? This is crazy to us. Lord, would you please use the pain and the heartache of life to do what you said in Matthew chapter 1 you were going to do with Jesus to save your people from their sins? Would you please do that? That means, friends, that we can no longer give lip service to our prayers for revival. That means that our prayers for revival may just bring really hard times on the church. It may bring really hard times on our nation. It may bring really hard times on our world and to you and me as individuals. You know, we go around, we talk about revival. This is one of the verses that you have to, at any time you talk about revival, you have to, you have to read this verse. It's like required. Everybody's like, we've got to pray for revival. We've got to pray for revival. And people break out 2 Chronicles 7.14. I'm going to read to you the American church version of it. It's a different version. Some of you are going to say, oh, he skipped part of it. And this is what the Lord said to King Solomon. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal heal their land. And people go, this is great. We can do this. We can humble ourselves. We can pray. We can seek God's face, and he'll, he'll hear from heaven. He'll forgive us and heal our land. Did you notice the part that I skipped? I skipped the part that said, and turn from their wicked ways. So let's listen to it again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and, and turn from their wicked ways. Both have to happen. Then, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You say, what's he going on about? Well, I read all this stuff. It tells us in, in surveys that typically the lives of American confessing Christians, I think in a church like ours it can be somewhat different because we're a lot more focused on exactly what God's saying. We're not skipping passages like this. But it says that most people who profess to be Christians, their lives are no different than anybody else's except where they spend one or two Sunday mornings a month. Guess what? God's not going to heal our land. It's a conditional promise. I would even say it's for them, but let's just say we want to bring it into our lives and, and apply it for us. We have to seek his face. We have to humble ourselves, but we have to turn from our wicked ways. Here's a hard truth, loved ones. It's a hard, hard truth, but we have to come to grips with it. We have to. Revival doesn't come to people who want to still continue in their way of life the way it is. It doesn't. Revival is not going to come to a church where we just want to keep doing everything the same. We keep repeating the same things, and then we wonder why we're not making a difference in society. Somebody say, well, that's Old Testament. I don't buy that stuff. Okay. John chapter 6, Jesus. The people were complaining that Jesus' teachings were too hard. Too hard. You know, we, all the pastor stuff I get in the mail says, you've got to make it easy for people. Be nice. I'm coming to the conclusion I'm getting older and crustier as each day goes by. I'm aware that it's happening. I want to have a hard ministry. I want to have a hard saying ministry. Oh, people that go, it's too hard. We can't do this without God. I'll be like, hallelujah, I did my job. Because we can't do it without God. It says, John chapter 6, verse 66. Interesting, John 666. From that time... Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. How sad is that? People who were once followers of Jesus, when Jesus said, hey, this is the way it's got to be, they said, that's not what we signed up for. That's not what we signed up for at all. Verse 67, this is amazing. Then Jesus, turned, Jesus said to the 12, so he flips around to the 12 apostles. He says this, do you also want to go away? <laughs> you think he, they were expecting him to turn around and go, well, at least I got you guys. He doesn't say that. He says, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter, the apostle Peter, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the one. Notice Habakkuk prays for God to move. Lord, bring your desires, bring your work, bring your plan upon your people and do whatever you have to do to make it happen. Habakkuk, interestingly enough, is praying that the crisis brings out about a new work of God in God's people. I know a lot of us are praying that, that this would, what's going on in our country right now will bring a lot of people back to God. 
But let's also make sure we're praying that it brings us back, that it makes us desire the Lord more. See, Habakkuk is praying that the crisis brings a new work. He's not saying, hey, God, save us from the Babylonians after we're done with all that stuff and bring us back to the way we are right now. Not at all. He doesn't want that. He's the, the way we are right now, the old ways, he's saying, are no good. The old ways of sin. I know people are trying to change the message all the time. The problem is not the message. The problem is our desire to live out the message in the power of the Spirit of God. I get all this stuff constantly in my inbox. I have a junk mail email inbox. I can't believe it. I don't really pay much attention to it. But um, lots of pastor articles that right now the guys are so concerned and why there, so many of them are pushing to open the churches so soon is that they're afraid that people won't come back to church. And right now, most churches are experiencing the same or less in their giving. Some, by some estimates, some people are thinking one-third of the churches in America might even close if churches were to not remain uh, closed much longer. And then if they don't come back to church, they won't be able to pay the bills. I understand that. That's a real problem. But personally, I'm more concerned that the church in America will remain the same and we will have wasted another warning from God. You see, we do pray for revivals, but we have to realize that revivals often happen in very, very difficult times. And God uses them to get rid of the sin in the lives of people and to bring new life. Not back to the way things were, but to bring new life. Now, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3 gives us a great visual of what revival looks like. He says, "For God says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Now let's just stop right there for a second. I know we want to blame the church for a lot of our problems, but the problem with the church is that it's full of people. We're the problem. And, and so he says, if, if you are thirsty... I'm going to pour water on you. Now, he says, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Some versions say on the thirsty land and floods or streams on the ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. That's a beautiful picture of revival. That God is taking what people didn't understand. They were dry. The people of the temple didn't understand they were dry. The people of the church don't understand that we might be dry. And God says, I'm going to pour water on you. I'm going to do stuff in you, man. It's going to be great if you're willing to humble yourself and seek my face and dump your wicked ways. I'll help you dump them. But God has a great plan. Now, Habakkuk knows that revival is going to come because of the Babylonians. But he also knows that the Babylonians are vicious, vicious people. 
And the first thing he asked us for, to, for was revival. You could say a second would be reveal, the work to us. But from revival, he takes us to the second thing, which is remember. Look at the ver- end of verse 2 concludes. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. And I know a lot of people have a lot of problem with God as a father because they have they had very wrathful, very difficult, very nasty fathers. And you know, it's it, it's hard, but but we can't associate your earthly father in the way he was, if it was bad, with with your heavenly father. Even if your earthly father was good, there's he's certainly not your heavenly father. No, God's wrath is his perfect divine punishment for sin. And Habakkuk, when he says, in wrath remember mercy, he agrees it needs to come. He agrees that God's people have just become dry and dead, and actually they could use this. But he also knows that without mercy, God's wrath would completely destroy his people. And if God completely destroys his people, there's no opportunity for them to be saved by grace, as the New Testament says, through faith. We're saved by the grace of God. We grab a hold of the grace of God. We grab a hold of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. So mercy, Habakkuk knows that mercy, God's mercy, tempers God's justice. And so while we do pray for an honest revival, God, do what it takes, we also must remember to pray that mercy must be part of our revival prayers as well as the fear of the Lord. Both must be involved. Remember, we should fear God. I loved my dad. I loved my dad. Father's Day is coming, and for me, it is a sad day because I just miss my dad. It's gone 19 years, just miss him. I loved my dad. And he loved me. And that's key. I realize that I have certain things in me that are the result of him that a lot of you don't have. I know a lot of you didn't constantly have a father put his arm around you and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So I knew that he loved me, but I feared my father's wrath, more commonly known in our house as his belt. And, and his wrath was like the Babylonian wrath. It was imperfect. I'm not saying my father was a Babylonian, but, but it was an imperfect wrath. God does not have imperfect wrath. Mercy is God giving, not giving us what we deserve. That is an attribute of God, mercy. So when he says to God, remember mercy, remember for God, God's not like God, God has a bad memory. When, when you see the word remember in the Bible associated with God, with us it's associated with our memory, remember you said this, remember you said that. It's associated with God, please act upon. Please act upon your mercy. So, so the essence of the prophet's prayer is having confessed their sin, having admitted the guilt of the people, having said to God, I know we deserve this, 
The essence of of the prayer is this. In your wrath, in the punishment, in the discipline that we deserve from you, God, please, please give us your mercy. The wrongs against God are real for sure. But there's a little statement tucked in James 2.13 that I love that says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, friend, that's why we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Because God's mercy will always triumph over his judgment. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God will extend his mercy to you. That is the message of the cross. That God, in his perfect, divine wrath, put his wrath, his judgment upon Jesus on the cross in order that he could offer you and me mercy. And all you have to do is ask for it. All you have to do is trust in Jesus' works instead of your own to get to heaven. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're with us today. And if you are right now, you're you're trembling before God. And I know that all too well. And you know that you deserve judgment. Look at the cross and realize that Jesus took Babylon for you. Babylon came in to be the instrument of God's justice, but imagine if Jesus had just come down and stood in between Babylon and his people and said, I'll take it all for you. And that is what happened on the cross. And if you plead for mercy, if you plead for the forgiveness of your sins, it will be given to you. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ shows us the holiness of God. It shows us that the holiness of God demands justice and punishment for sin. But, remember we said we don't know enough about the just, the holiness of God and the love of God. But because of the love of God, there is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. There is grace and mercy for all who turn to God, put their trust in Jesus, and are willing to follow him. So today, friend, come to Jesus. Don't dilly-dally. You may never feel this way again. Come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. That is the way prophets prayed for revival. You say, where do we start? I, 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 I'm, I'm all in, Pastor Jim. I want to be one of these people that's praying for revival. Where do I start? Oh, Lord, revive your work. That's where we start. Revive your work in our time. And in your wrath, remember, act upon mercy. God himself Reviving his work, his work, is the only hope for the church. It's the only hope for the world. 
It's the only hope for you. And it's the only hope for me. May God, in his mercy, revive our hearts. Let's pray.